Hello, this is Media Talk USA. I'm Jeff Jarvis. On this podcast, The Washington Post tries to sell access to the powerful, including reporters, and gets taken to the woodshed. Michael Jackson is laid to rest, but not in media. A very, very sad story. Uh, CNN has confirmed from sources familiar with the situation that Michael Jackson is in a coma, but the Los Angeles Times is now reporting that he has, has died. Also, a brewing fight over the link economy, and out of the Aspen Ideas Festival came one idea. Is the solution to the demise of the U.S. newspaper industry to create an American version of the BBC? So I think this is a moment for public media, public broadcasting, to claim a status in, in the society that I think has been diminished. Plus, more ideas from Aspen. Every time you look at a newspaper, they look like nothing. It's like planning a good party, everybody leaves happy, nobody knows you worked your buns off to, uh, to make sure all of your guests were happy. Media Talk USA from GuardianAmerica.com and PaidContent.org. Welcome to July's Media Talk USA podcast from The Guardian. We have in the studio at the City University of New York Graduate School of Journalism a familiar accent for our UK listeners, Nick Denton, founder of Gawker Media and someone who actually makes money from blogs and news online. It can be done. Nick cut his teeth as a Financial Times and Economist journal. Also here is Alan Murray, Deputy Managing Editor of the Wall Street Journal and Executive Editor for the Journal Online. Alan and I have been known to do some fencing on Twitter with very short swords. Welcome. As we record this, Michael Jackson is about to be mobbed and memorialized in L.A. I see you're both wearing black in his honor. Sort of. Are you going to watch the, uh, the funeral? Um, I was actually looking for photographs of the um, video of the helicopters. Apparently the, uh, um, the skies of L.A. are completely full of helicopter TV cameras, and um, I thought that would be a good image. Is this a big story for the journal? Can you ignore it? Well, it's, you know, that's an interesting question because this is precisely the kind of story we used to ignore. Um, uh, I spent 25 years at the journal, and in the old days, we always thought of ourselves as a second news source. We figured everybody read their local paper, the L.A. Times or the Chicago Tribune or whatever, and they only came to us for, for the areas that we could add value to. But now, uh, uh, since Rupert Murdoch has bought it, uh, those days are gone. The uh, big... Uh, dailies are dying, and we cover everything, including Michael Jackson's funeral. We actually find it rather difficult. How so? Is the word competition for you? No, we, we find covering that, a story like that, um, when, you're, when you're competing against sites like TMZ, you know, which relish every little detail, every little fact, you know, they don't feel any need to kind of add value, at, you know, add intelligence, commentary, put it in some kind of great social context. Um, it's actually hard for any site that has any aspirations to intelligence to to compete. Shouldn't you be adding value that way? Can't you add that intelligence, or there's none to be had with Jackson? I, I don't know. I don't know what it, what there is to say. So we'll move on. Right onto our first item: cash for access. Media Talk USA. So first off, the Washington Post, like every newspaper, was looking to find some new source of revenue, and so someone had the bright idea of holding private, sponsored dinners at the home of Post publisher Catherine Weymouth, promising access to the powerful and a cone of silence. All hell broke loose as media critics, including David Carr of the New York Times, took the paper out for a whooping. Yet other publishers also hold expensive get-togethers featuring reporters. The Guardian plays host to radio and TV conferences and the Hay Festival, where its stars turn out. And not to pick on one, but since you're here, Alan, the Wall Street Journal holds its All Things D conference with Walt Mossberg and Kara Swisher. 
So, Alan, what's the difference? Uh, and I, I mean, know there is one, but there is the a line? big, big difference. And and the D conference is just one. We have a large and growing uh, uh, conference business. We do a CEO conference uh, once a year in Washington. We had a uh, we've done a future of finance conference. They're uh, small groups, fairly elite, high ticket price. Uh, uh, and we do have uh, senior government officials join us for some of them. But here's the big, big difference. We do these conferences as an extension of our news gathering and news distribution. We, uh, uh, they're on the record. Uh, the people who come and speak are on the record. We, we stream video over the uh, website. Uh, Tim Geithner, I interviewed Tim Geithner, the Treasury Secretary, at one of our conferences in March. A hundred people in the room, but we streamed it live on the website, and we cut up uh, video pieces so you could watch it afterwards. So it's not paying for access. That was the problem in the Washington Post case. Uh, maybe, maybe there's some journalistic purpose to it. Maybe, maybe you can get some news stories. Maybe you can um, do some podcasts. Um, but the, everybody knows that the real value of conferences is not in the sessions themselves, but in the corridors and then the parties and the chit-chat. The same reason you two went to Aspen. People like, people like to meet with each other, talk with each other in the corridors. It's no different than your visit to Aspen. And that's why they're paying. And, Absolutely. And what you bring for them is not so much the, the program, not so much the content, but the people that you can actually attract using the Wall Street Journal name. Uh, oh, I, sure. But the idea that we are selling a, a, you know, exclusive access, if you read what the F- Washington Post flyers said, it, this will be an off-the-record session where you can come and have access both to reporters and to policymakers who are making the critical decisions on health care. We don't do that. Well, I, I, I would accept it's much, much better disguised than in, in the case of the Washington Post. You, you you pride yourself in breaking rules, Nick. Do you think the Washington Post did something wrong here? I, I mean, I find it hard to manufacture, you know, that much indignation. <laughs> uh, what, what the difference here seems to be that it ha- happened, um, or the the events were planned at her home, and I don't see that that's such a significant difference. Well, there is, but there is a big difference in between off the record and on the record. I mean, we're in the business of an, of of informing the public, the, the, the informing the, 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 the informing our readers. We don't withhold information from our readers. But the parties are implicitly off the record, aren't they? At all things, do you? It, it would be seen as being ill-mannered at the very, very Just least. Just like any party. Yeah. So onto the party. Uh, take the hard work out of listening. Set up your free subscription to the podcast. All the details can be found at guardian.co.uk slash mediatalkusa. Media Talk USA from The Guardian and paid content. Still to come in this podcast, is it time for the American BBC? In the United States, the commercial pressures had uh, really uh, sidelined public broadcasting. So now our news and brief section, just a short discussion of some recent media headlines. Dan Abrams, former host and head of MSNBC, has started Mediaite, if that's how you say it, which criticizes the media. But at the same time, he runs Abrams Research, which promises to advise companies on how to handle, read, manipulate the press, using journalists to help them. I've blogged snarkily that this is giving the fox the keys to the hen house. A few questions. Is this proper? Let's put aside the fact that it's actually relatively amateurishly done as a, as a website. I think it's interesting insofar as it's another example of people thinking that the internet permits them to break all rules. Uh, and you know, they're, they're not alone in this. You, you, know, you can actually look at what the Washington Post has done as being an example of how a company might want to experiment under that kind of commercial pressure. Um, we have pressure from our sales people, um, and I'm sure you, you Alan, feel, um, feel some of that yourself. People, people who say the old divides between editorial and advertising 
or between editorial and public relations, um, that they're old, they're old-fashioned, they're redundant. Uh, and it, this is a perfect excuse, this kind of time of change is a perfect excuse for people to take old traditions and to tear them up. And some of those old traditions are good traditions. Yeah, I hate to be agreeable, but I think Nick is is absolutely right on this one. I, I have nothing against what Dan is doing. I have nothing against uh, uh, people who want to advise companies on how well, to deal but, with it. But he's, but, he's but, promising but, to use journalists without telling the journalists whom they're advising, working journalists, to advise companies to do PR. Would no, you allow any of your no, journalists to do that? No journalist who works for us would be allowed. So then how do you not have a problem with what he's doing? Well, because if he can find other ju- unemployed journalists out there who want to spend their days advising companies, it's public relations. I have nothing against public relations as a profession. Our journalists would never be allowed to do it. And Jeff, this is, you know, you and I get into these arguments. You get sort of all wound up if anyone talks about professional journalism. But this is what I mean when I talk about professional journalism. It's not about getting some degree or license or certification. It's about working for a journalism organization that has standards of ethics, standards of practice. You don't do crap like this if you work for a professional journalism organization. I think that's important and important to preserve as we move into this new world. I think it's absolutely fine for journalists to go into public relations. And, and the way they should go into public relations is they should quit. quit. And, they, and they go into public relations. And frankly, they'll never come back. The other issue here is that do we have enough media coverage or too much? I mean, I frankly, I've seen in the Wall Street Journal, I think, am I, am I wrong in this, perceiving less coverage of media than there was, let's say, a year or two ago? There may be some truth to that. If there is, it's a mistake on our part, and we'll be working to beef it up. I think the media industry is a fascinating industry right now, trying to figure out how you create a business model uh, that works in an industry where the marginal cost is zero. Um, uh, that, there are lots of other industries that have the same problem, but any business publication has to give a great deal of attention to that challenge. The media is fascinating to people who work in the media. Uh, you know, one of the things that the internet, one of the, one of the good things the internet has brought us is data. It's brought us data, page view data, audience data, popularity data. And you know, one of the things that we've found when we look at, when we look at our numbers, you know, and we have a, a site, a flagship site, which is focused on media gossip. But one of the things we found is that people don't care about newspapers. Well, we, people we, people we, do not care about magazines. We have a very different group of readers then because, because our readers care a great deal about it. Look, many of you have an older group of readers. No, you have an enormous amount of people who are facing the same transformation that we're facing. They're, they're, you know, I just had breakfast uh, this morning with Antonio Perez, who runs Kodak. Exact same problem. He walked into a company that was making film. Uh, in the digital age, he had to transform it into the into a digital world. That's the problem we face. That's the problem a lot of companies out there face, uh, and and people are fascinated with the challenge of making that work. Well, fine if you have that problem, you know, discuss it internally at meetings. But why inflict that um, you know these subjects on people who don't really care? Our readers care. That's what many of our readers are dealing with, how, how to operate in a, in a digital world, in an economy where attention is what's in shortest supply, uh, and in an economy where marginal costs are tending towards zero, and the old economic models don't work anymore. So, it, look, it's a, you, you have uh, you, readers come to your site to see the latest gossip, and maybe they don't care about media gossip. Uh, people come to us to find out more about how the world works, and this is a critical piece of it. But Gawker was known for media gossip. In fact, I saw in the discussion about media some regret that they weren't getting their fix anymore from Gawker. 
Um, Gorka was known for media gossip, and Gorka still covers media gossip. And one of the things that we, has changed is the you know our definition of media. You know, we found by looking at the looking at the data by publishing the data of popularity of stories, we found people don't care about newspapers, not very much. We don't really care about magazines, even kind of fancy Condé Nast stories. But they do care about the new forms of media. They care about. They care about gossip at Facebook, um, the internal politics of Facebook. They care about Google. Like, you know, they care about television. They care about reality television. They just don't care about you know, ink on paper. One of the marks of, of desperation that we've seen in the last few weeks is that Judge Richard Posner and now Cleveland Plain Dealer columnist Connie Schultz are proposing changes to copyright law to advance newspapers against aggregators, uh, who they say are eating paper's lunch. Is this necessary? Is it meddling with the First Amendment? Is it a way to protect a dying industry? Well, you ask that question like as if you didn't have an opinion on it. Well, oh, I do. Well, but, uh, of course you do. You're outraged by it. You think it's horrendous. I, I don't find it so horrendous at all. Uh, I do think uh, intellectual property protection is important. I do think the creators of content need to have some control over the content they create. If they, at the end of the day, want to choose to open up their content to anybody who wants to come and uh, crawl it on the web, more power to them. But it should be their choice. It shouldn't be Google's choice. It should be up to oh, them. Oh, you can do that today, Alan. You can put up a robot's text, don't follow, to any site. What they're suggesting is that those who do linking in various models and the two ideas, that there should be a 24-hour prohibition of summarizing a story, that is to say discussing it, or that... I, um, I don't see how that should, works. I don't see how that to... works. But I think anything that gives more power to content creators in this battle we're going on uh, is... is it is probably a, a good thing uh, because then then they can sit at the table and have a negotiation. Look, there are lots of things that Google does that aren't particularly helpful to the newspaper business. It doesn't uh, highlight original content, uh, so the so the people who do a quick ripoff are as likely to get the the Google link as the people who did months of reporting to create the story. I think that's a problem. Uh, it's Google is always making noises about going into the display ad business, taking uh, taking on information websites head on that way. I, I, I think giving news organizations a little bit more of a say in this negotiation would be a good thing. It, it, this is a cyclical phenomenon. Uh, every single time the advertising business turns down, you know, then newspapers get, um, get worried about people stealing their, stealing their content. Every, every time the advertising business picks up, uh, newspapers are, are, are free and open and want their content and want you know, links to their content distributed as widely as possible. Um, the real issue here is Google. And the only way that newspapers are going to change the balance of power between themselves and Google is by suing Google, and by gathering together, suing Google, collectively withdrawing their content you know, until they actually get their act together you know, and, fra 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 and frankly grow a pair um, to... <laughs> to, to, to take on Google, this whole discussion is, is academic. Well, what's Google doing wrong? They're, they're doing nothing commercially wrong. Um, but, I'm, but I'm sure there's a, there's a way you could sue them. Well, it doesn't have to be a suit. I mean, what you talked about is banding together and withdrawing their content. As you pointed out, you could, we could do that right now if, you get, if, if, uh, if the newspaper industry were to get together and say, you know, we don't like the terms of this relationship. Either you agree to some new terms or we withdraw. But, Nick, you said at Aspen, you thanked the, the uh, grandpas of the industry here for being slow because it made uh, the way open for thugs like you. 
So maybe it's maybe you're just hoping and wishing that all these newspapers shut off their content because it'll help you. I, I, I don't really care either way. Um, but, but, but you know, if, if you ask me what I think the newspapers should do, if I what, what I would do if I was them, and you know, if I had control over a whole big group of newspapers, then yeah, you know, then that's what that's what I would do. I don't think they're going to do it. Um, and if they did do it, I guess I, I would watch that space. I, I do think newspapers are going to look for ways to have a stronger position in negotiations with Google. The, the thing that I, I actually I spoke to Murdoch about this. I I actually said, why don't you sue them? Why don't you sue them? Why don't you pull out? Well, he pull can't out your by himself. And uh, and and I was surprised at how this formidable, fearsome media mogul. Um, had pretty much given up. It, it, he was I, I, he's, he's, he's friends with Sergey. Um, Wendy is I, friends with Sergey's boy, I wife. Don't, I don't think that's right. If you listen to what he has said, if you listen to Robert uh, Thompson's comments about a tapeworm in the intestines of the internet, uh, Les Hinton, the CEO of Dow Jones, talked about Google as a vampire. I mean, that's all rhetoric, obviously. That doesn't get you anywhere. But the basic problem is no one has a... St- Google has an amazing market position. No one in the news business has a strong enough market position to go against Google by themselves. There has to be some means of collective action before it happens. So finally, fireworks from Alaska. More freedom to progress all the way around so that Alaska may progress. I will not seek re-election as governor. And I really wish that you would hear more from the media, more from the media of your state's good progress and how we tackle outside interests, special interests daily we're tackling. those. Interests I that tweeted we- after that that I thought the only honest headline the next day was WTF. So what the fuck? What is she saying? Are newspapers at all aware of what's happening here, or are they just filling space? I I don't think anybody knows the full story yet. I mean, I I covered Washington for 25 years. I've never seen a political press conference like that one where you're kind of scratching your head and saying, you know, if she came out and said, I have had it. This really sucks. You know, I've got all these people filing ethics complaints against me. They're making fun of my children. Uh, I clearly can't get a a a fair shake, so I quit. I'm not running for president. I'm out of it. That would be a humanly, perfectly understandable thing for her to do. But that's not what she did. She sounded like somebody who is still in the game, but she's leaving the governor's office. Well, you, you, that's just not going to work. I mean, why is, would anyone support Sarah Palin for uh, the presidency or for any political office when she has walked away from the one political office she had? Yeah, I, I agree. Absolutely. No one will elect a quitter. Did anyone add any insight in the press? Did all the nattering uh, uh, nabobs add anything to this, or, or, or are we all just oh, scratching our heads? I don't think anybody totally understands how the synapses fit together in Sarah Palin's mind. But I found a lot of the coverage fascinating, talking to people who, you know, people in Alaska who are talking to people who know her well and was sort of, were trying to describe uh, how she's thinking. And, and, and what, what, what was evoked by that coverage was clearly what a miserable six months it's been for, for her. And that, that's very real and re- was reported very well. It, it was interesting how the media had you – know, there, was, there was no consensus view. I mean you had Andrea Mitchell at, at one extreme. You had some people who thought that um, this was a, a presaging a, a presidential bid in 2012. Some people who thought she was out of politics f- forever. And, and no one really knows yet. For more on all these stories, go to my blog, buzzmachine.com and paidcontent.org. Media Talk USA with Jeff Jarvis. So, 
It's been a busy month in media. Apple came out with its new iPhone GS. I see Nick has it, and I'm terribly jealous. Uh, he's complaining about the battery life, by the way. Consumer tip. Uh, Google is being investigated over its book settlement. Don't get me started. Uh, but one story had been dominating the media, Iran, which quickly became more about the way it was being told through Twitter than about the story itself. And then this happened, and you could almost hear the TV networks breathing a sigh of relief as they didn't have to cover that damned foreign news anymore. Michael Jackson is dead. CNN has not confirmed that. The Los Angeles Times and the Associated Press are now reporting Michael Jackson has died. Breaking news. Multiple media outlets are now reporting that pop singer Michael Jackson has died. With late news from Los Angeles, the LA Times is reporting that pop star Michael Jackson has died. Producer Andy went to the museum in Washington and talked with veteran editor and reporter Susan Bennett. I was the bureau chief in Memphis for United Press International in 1970 on August 16th, a day I'll never forget when Elvis died. And the uh, coverage was equally overwhelming. I mean, we had more than 500 reporters show up in Memphis. Not an easy place to get to. And it went on for days. I, I always thought as the bureau chief that when Elvis died, we'd do a story and that would be the end of it. We'd go on with our lives the next day. But here it is 32 years later, and we're still talking about Elvis. Michael Jackson fans probably can't get enough. I, as a news consumer, have had enough. And I think a lot of people feel that way. I mean, one thing, too, you, have, you look at is what else is going on. It's summertime. And there's not a lot of other major stories uh, that have competed with it. Oftentimes, you know, for example, the death of Farrah Fawcett, a movie star here, would have gotten some coverage and probably much more extensive coverage for at least a period of a couple of days because she had been very public with her battle with cancer. And uh, But because she ha had the misfortune to die on the same day as Michael Jackson, she got mere mentions. So it's all dictated by what is the biggest story of the day. It's also a domestic story in the United States, so it's much easier, much cheaper to cover. Because we're in the 24-hour news cycle, it's 10 times as much. I mean, with Elvis, you had uh, a lot of television coverage, but you know you would have a story in the morning paper and a story in the evening paper. You didn't have the 24-hour news channels covering Michael Jackson for 12 hours of those 24, and you didn't have the blogs, and you didn't have the newspaper websites. So in sheer volume, it's a lot less. Wasn't the Michael Jackson story taken over by a combination of TMZ and Twitter? Well, that's what was strange about your, your lead-in here. All the clips that you played were giving credit to the Los Angeles Times. Uh, you know, as far as I know, the TMZ called the death of Michael Jackson before any other source. And it's, it's interesting that mainstream media still feels the need to, um, to quote reputable organizations, reputable sources like the LA Times, when I think it's pretty clear that the TMZ celebrity gossip blog has much better contacts in LA than any of these other organizations. I think that's probably true. I guess you'd ask the question of what's the, what is the accuracy rate and what is the accuracy goal of a, of a site like uh, TMZ? It's a, it's a different kind of business. But look, I think the interesting thing here is if you look at, you mentioned Twitter, look at how Twitter dealt with Michael Jackson and then look at how Twitter dealt with Iran. We don't need news organizations to tell the world that Michael Jackson is dead. That's going to happen. That's going to happen through Twitter. Still that's going to happen. He's, he's dead, and that's going to get out there, and you don't need professional news organizations. I'm sorry I used that word again, Jeff, uh, to tell the world what happened. But Iran was a very different story. Now, I followed the Twitter feed uh, from what was going on in Iran. It was 
compelling, it was interesting, it was immediate, but it very quickly got very confusing. Uh, you actually had people on Twitter telling other people tweeting to change their location. So it looked like their uh, tweets were coming from Tehran in order to confuse the authorities. And then you started to see people on there who others were confusing of being government agents. And so it pretty soon turned into a jumble. And if you if you took two steps back and said, what in the hell is going on here? Twitter was not going to answer that question for no, you. No, and that's you where need professional, professional journalists, news see, we both said, said that word. People, you bet Way to go, Jeff. To add value to that. <laughs> yes. Right? That's why we need professional journalism. Not to tell us Michael Jackson is dead. TMZ can do that. I'm fine. But maybe the professional journalist is is somebody, an expert, who just sits on Twitter and judges what other tweets are. That, that would be fine. But who? But but that that person has to be in the business of of providing news, not on the payroll. Uh, you know, not not working for uh, what's his face, Dan Abrams. You know, <laughs> on the side to make his living. He has to make his living as a journalist. Or, 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 or maybe an academic, a Middle Eastern expert. You know, who can actually who can yeah, where the paycheck comes well, from uh, is not really the issue. Well, it is the issue. Let me get. Let me tell you why. I mean, I was at Davos earlier this year and the guy who runs Human Rights Watch was there and we were having you were there you were in that session we were having one of these debates and you said Twitter and Lionel Barber got all upset that you said Twitter and they were going back and forth and this guy stands up and he says hey we're the answer. I'm with Human Rights Watch. I have these people all over the world reporting. You can rely on them for their news. Well, I'm sorry. I don't believe that. I cannot rely on them for the news because they're not out to collect the news. They are out to collect evidence that advances Human Rights Watch's well, cause. You, you may like that. Human Rights Watch's cause, but they have, a, they have an axe to grind. And if you don't, and again, a dirty word, professional journalists who don't have an axe to grind is what's critical here. Right. Let, 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 me, let, me, let me ask a question. You have uh, did you have somebody in Tehran? Uh, no, not at that time. We didn't. Okay, okay let's take the New York Times. The New York Times, uh, they don't speak Farsi. They're relying on fixers. They're relying on translators. Everybody knows that around the world, the fixers and translators come from a specific class of highly educated, cosmopolitan, Western-oriented people. And any journalist that relies on them can get a very distorted view of No, of no question. Look, journalism is, journalists are not perfect. Professional journalism is not perfect. There will be mistakes. But it, but. Anybody who was looking at that Twitter feed coming out of Iran was dying for somebody who they could trust, who was closer to the situation than they are, who could tell them what it meant. That's what journalists do. They might have access to crime. They're not professional, but they're witnesses. And witnesses can now share what they know. And we need a different system to deal with that. It's not the old thing of having our man in Tehran. So all I want is somebody who's getting their paycheck from, from an organization that cares about professional journalism to be between me and the information. So, now that we've solved that, read more at mediaguardian.co.uk. And while you're dialed into the internet, join our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter. Search both platforms for MediaTalk USA. MediaTalk USA. We now move up the mountain to the Aspen Ideas Festival. Nick and I were there high in altitude and low in oxygen. Alan was back in New York doing real professional work. Amidst more of the same doom and gloom, moping and mourning about the state and fate of the news industry that we heard there, there was some optimism. I spoke to Alberto Abarguan from the Knight Foundation, an organization that offers grants to help transform journalism and communities. I'm a complete optimist. In fact, I'm a prisoner of hope. 
It is a fantastic time, Jeff. It really is a fantastic time. And when you look around, listen to all of the variety of experiments that are going on, I don't see how you can not be an optimist. Nick Denton said yesterday that it's too late for experiments. That era is over. I just don't agree. Um, I think I think I might agree with that once we figure out what the next big thing is going to be. But we but we so clearly have not figured out what the next big thing is going to be. I don't think that means that we're not in trouble. I think we're clearly in trouble because the organizations and institutions on which you and I and, and everybody else has relied for all these years, both to be watchdogs and to tell us what time the movies are and what and who's doing what at City Hall and who the new neighbors are across town, those institutions, their business models are in trouble. There's no, there's no question about that. I think the more firepower we focus on this thing, the better. Is the future more likely to come from the institutions of the past or from entrepreneurs and innovators and students going forward? I think the answer is yes. Uh, and you know it. Uh, I think the answer is it has to come from both because the institutions that have, that, that have the experience, the expertise uh, to do the more, the more sophisticated uh, kind of reporting uh, or even to do the kind of regular day in and day out that looks like nothing but is a miracle every time you look at a newspaper or look at a TV broadcast. They require a lot of experience so that they look like nothing. But they are not the ones necessarily who are thinking the way of the future, who are thinking, and by that I mean the way of the market. So, Nick, it's too late? Well, it's certainly too, it, it's too late to be experimenting. And we, we have 15 years of the Internet to look back on. If you haven't worked it out yet, then I don't know what you're doing. Uh, there's more experimentation to come. We haven't worked it out yet. I think we're, we're going to be looking at a lot of interesting experiments over the next 10 or 15 years. Well, you know what? Go and look at the experiments. Get distracted. Fine. Uh, uh, the rules of the Internet have been set. And the rules are rapid publishing. Get it out quickly. Engage your readers display data in public, whether it's most emailed or most popular, arrange your whole site around your readers. I think that's pretty obvious now. Are you making money doing that? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm told we are. <laughs> okay, one more idea from the Ideas Festival. Is the perfect storm of the financial crisis and media's internet revolution and, one would argue, tortoise uh, development go on? What about the idea of an all-encompassing online print and broadcasting company to fill the coming void, in short, an American BBC? This is the brainchild of David Fanning, who's the executive producer of Frontline, America's only regularly scheduled investigative documentary series on TV. He talked about it at Aspen. I really believe in the idea of uh, public media and the idea of public journalism. And public radio, which has been quite successful in the United States, has a, has a pretty significant impact. Uh, it doesn't do as much enterprise journalism as one would hope. Public television has a really mixed record. Um, some good work, we like to think that Frontline has done, has kept the flag flying. But I miss, between those two, um, a really robust news organization. So I see in the space between radio and television, in the online space, a chance to build a really substantial new news organization, something that has at its heart both print, investigative reporters, um, and indeed radio and television. Let me start on the business side. Are you giving up on for-profit journalism? Is this replacing the newspaper? It doesn't at all. I think that, the, I think that a democracy demands a healthy public media 
uh, element to it. It's, it's significant, I think, of course, I mean, Britain and in, uh, and in, and, and in industrialized countries, they all have great and productive public broadcasters. Uh, while in the United States, the commercial pressures had uh, really uh, sidelined public broadcasting. So I think uh, this is a moment for public media, public broadcasting, to, uh, to regain, uh, to claim a status in, in the society that I think has been diminished. Um, but I think it does that as, uh, as an adjunct to the, to the commercial outlets uh, while people are talking about pay models and, uh, and uh, for commercial uh, journalism and trying to figure out how to charge for content. Um, I think at the heart of public media is the fact that it's free. Here in the U.S., we tend to be allergic to the notion of government support of and thus interference in journalism. That makes me a little hinky. Well, I mean, first of all, uh, if you look at the relative, uh, first of all, the commitment by the society. Um, you know, industrialized societies mm, tend to spend as much as $100 or more per citizen per year towards public media. In the United States, it's down to $1.50 or something per person. Um, so first of all, I think that there is a capacity for the federal subsidy to be a great deal larger. The question of how that is insulated from uh, political interference, I think, is a profound and important one. There is a process at the moment where the federal dollars go into the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, travels out to the public television stations. It's in effect laundered, if you will, because it then comes back to the central organization and is distributed to major national producers to produce. By the time the money reaches frontline, there is no opportunity for government to even begin to interfere in the decisions we make editorially. So I think there are all sorts of mechanisms you can create uh, to protect uh, from government interference. So Nick, you come from the land of the BBC. Do we need one of those things here in America? <laughs> Long sigh. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I like the BBC. Um, in the UK, you have a lot of commercial media organisations that complain about unfair competition from the from the BBC, yeah. inclu including some of your counterparts over in the UK. Yeah. Um, yeah. Look, I, I, I think journalism serves a public purpose. If governments think as a result of that that there's some value to putting some money in journalism, uh, that's fine. Uh, uh, the BBC is a great news organization. In this country, we have National Public Radio, uh, which is a good news organization but clearly has an ideological tilt that's to the left of the of the public in general. I, the thing that scares me most about that statement out in Aspen were, were the words all-encompassing. <laughs> Again, we need lots of experiments if public experiments are part of this Fine, but uh, I'm not so sure it's fine. All encompassing. Uh, the idea of government funding into journalism just opens the door to interference. It, it I think it's unnecessary cry of surrender. Uh, it scares me. It's, it's also not going to happen, is it? You know, the, the, the idea that somehow that Obama is going to spend precious political capital forcing through a measure which is going to have violent right-wing well, reaction for, to and it. And forget political capital. Look at the fiscal uh, situation that the country is in right now. I mean, we're, we're heading towards uh, – we've got bills uh, for the next few decades that we're not going to be able to pay as a country. I don't think anybody in Congress is going to be eager to set money aside for journalists. I, I think the real problem with American journalism is that too much of it has been run as if it was like a public trust. For, for too long. You know, American journalism needs to be more competitive, more vigorous. Um, 
more trashier, more tabloidy sometimes, um, in order for it to kind of to regain life and to make it through to uh, over to the internet. And, and the, the idea that we're going to have this kind of bland, liberal pudding of a public media organization, I don't think that's going to solve any, any of the fundamental problems of American media. And, and let's, let's say something nice about newspapers. American newspapers now, I think, are probably better than they have been in the last few decades. You know, the New York Times, you know, which is a you know, great, reliable newspaper, it's actually, it's actually finally sometimes lively. I agree with that, but not, not Metro Papers. Metro Papers, did you pick up a paper in Denver? They're, they're thin, razor thin, Well, they don't have any reporters. Dull. They don't no. have any reporters anymore. I mean, they're, they're, they're being picked apart. But I agree with what Nick's saying. I mean, that's the irony of this moment we live in. This is the golden age for journalism. Uh, you have a lot of great things going on. And, of course, multimedia means you can do those things in different media in much more powerful ways than before. Uh, we're just still groping uh, around the business model. Uh, Nick thinks he has it all figured out. Uh, Rupert's getting closer, but uh, I, I think it's... That, that, that's actually why I was surprised at um, the media panels at Aspen, media panels generally. The journalism about journalism that, we, that we ha- we're forced to read so much of, of uh, these days. Um, th- th- there's so much to do. It, it should be so fun. Why is everybody moping? Wringing their hands. I totally agree. Well, I'd say on that note, it is time to get out of here and turn the media trashy and do a month of solid Michael Jackson coverage. I want to thank my panelists very much, and we'll be back next month. This podcast was produced by Andy Duckworth, who's headed back to London, and Glenn Austin Anderson, the new producer Glenn, and recorded in the studios of the City University of New York Graduate School of Journalism. Don't forget to add your comments to our blog at guardian.co.uk slash mediatalkusa. Make sure you subscribe from there, too, so you don't miss next month's edition, which we'll upload in the first week of August. I'm Jeff Jarvis. Thank you for listening. Media Talk USA from GuardianAmerica.com and PaidContent.org.